word of God from Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, or birds, or animals, or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossip slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. Let us pray for illumination. Lord, we would humble ourselves in thy presence before thy word. Grant us grace so to receive it in our hearts that its message may be printed indelibly upon us. Grant us, Lord, thy illuminating presence to grasp that which thou hast inscripturated for us in Christ our Lord. Amen. The gospel has a glory, no question about that. 
is the glory of its central person. It is the glory of its effective power in which it does the very thing God sent it to do. It is the glory of its proclamation in that the righteousness of God, which ought to have been a barrier against us, instead is a gift to us. What a glory it has. But is it necessary or is it a luxury? Is it for every man, even the heathen, who know nothing about it? Is it for the well-educated, psychologically balanced person who knows all that he needs to know about life, he thinks? In this age of education, philosophy, and science, is it for the modern, the gospel? Or is it simply for those who may feel a particular need for it? The Word of God addresses that problem right here in this section of the book of Romans. And the teaching of this dark passage, in some ways this terrible passage, is that the gospel is utterly necessary for everyone because of the universality of human sin and the righteousness of God's judgment. The gospel is utterly necessary for everyone because of the universality of human sin and the righteousness of God's judgment. In this passage, unique in all the Word of God, the desperate condition of the human heart is depicted perhaps as no other place. A desperate condition because the human heart is under the wrath of God. Here we read that the wrath of God is revealed against the human heart. Suppose you were to read in the paper that in a certain town in Maryland there was a person on whom God was pouring his wrath that the wrath of God had been announced somehow upon a certain person in a certain town in Maryland. Oh, your heart would go out to that person. You may even get in your car and go and look at the house. You may try to find the person. And you would expect to see a miserable creature who would ask you to pray for him, who would be in sackcloth and ashes, who would be weeping. The wrath of God is upon me. Yet the Bible teaches that every natural man, that is man apart from the saving grace of God, is under the wrath of God. This is the desperate condition that's revealed here in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, meaning that the one who sits in heaven, the eternal God has made it known by his word and in his own ways that his infinite anger is upon the natural man. When you think of the wrath of God, don't compare it to your own wrath, which is mixed with sinful emotion. Our wrath has in it all kinds of other things that, that make it wrong. But God's wrath is pure. 
It is calm. It is the undeviating purpose of God to make a connection between human sin and misery. Just as there is a connection between temperature and clouds and precipitation, so God has ordained that there will be a connection between sin and punishment. And the ordination of those two things, the connection of those, is called in the scripture the wrath of God. And so it's inexorable. It must happen. Now it is covered because the wrath of God merely rests upon the natural man. But the day comes when that wrath will be revealed in its fullness and poured out. Upon him. So we say the gospel is necessary because man is in a desperate condition. Think of that man in the town of Maryland under the wrath of God. And now extend that to say every man who is natural, that is, apart from the saving grace of Christ, is under this same wrath of God. Why? Is it arbitrary on God's part? No. He's there, according to verse 18, because of his ungodliness. There are three reasons given. The first is the ungodliness. Meaning by this that God has created man to be like him. He made him in his image to walk in his ways and to resemble him in his words and thoughts and actions, to obey and delight in his law. But instead, man runs from God. He doesn't resemble him. He's God's enemy. He does the very opposite of the thing God wants. That's easy for him, but to do God's works are greatly difficult. That's what the Bible calls here ungodliness, and that's why wrath comes. The next reason is wickedness. Wickedness refers to the unholy relation between us, where God made us to live in the kind of loving fellowship that he has with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with us. There is instead murder and strife and deceit and envy and hatred and slander and bitterness. All of these ugly things existing so that law courts have to develop. Law enforcement officials have to proliferate. All these to hold down wrong relations between men. And God hates it. He said to Cain, the blood of your brother cries out to me. That's God's attitude about man's own wickedness to man. And his wrath exists for that. And the third reason is here that the natural man suppresses the truth he's been given. God gave the outline of his nature and his will to man. That's the truth, which is both moral and intellectual. God gave truth. But what has natural man done with truth? Instead of letting that truth shape his life and form him into the image of God, he takes that truth and buries it. He covers it with his own sinfulness. He suppresses it. It is dynamic, living. It would come up out of that. But man, by his own wickedness, so hides the truth that the very thing which could be of help to him, he is suppressing. And God hates that, the suppression of his dynamic truth. Oh, what a desperate condition we are in. So that we are not, that is, the natural man is not a child of God. 
He is instead an enemy of God. And the scripture says he is a child of the devil. Instead of being a child of his heavenly father, he's a child of God's enemy. And instead of having God's spirit dwell in him, he's a habitation of dragons or a habitation of the devil. If the window, a window could be made in the natural man's human heart and we could look into it, we would see there such loathsome things that the tongue and the pen cannot describe the wickedness that we would find in the heart of the natural man. He is in a desperate condition because he has no security in this life. The natural man does not know whether tomorrow morning at this time he will be alive on the face of the earth or in hell. He has utterly no security. At any moment God may suspend his mercy and reap what has been coming to the natural man and he may find himself in hell. He has no security whatsoever. What a condition to be in. And were he to die today, he has no title to an inheritance in heaven. Absolutely no right to come to the gates of heaven and demand entrance because he has been an enemy of God. He has no propitiation to cover his sins, and he is in a desperate strait. Is the gospel necessary? That's what this passage is pleading. It is utterly necessary because of the desperate condition in which the natural man is. It goes on to say that not only is he in this condition, but he is deliberately responsible for his corruption, deliberately responsible. And the point is, there as it is described in verse 20, or 19 and 20, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. One of the things you will hear today is that God is unknowable. You can't know him, so why bother? But the Bible says that you can know him, not knowing exhaustively all about him. Secret things belong to the Lord. But we can know about him in outline. We can know the things which he has caused us to know. So that he has placed within us and around us the clues of his character and the outlines of his nature so that we know something about God instinctively from our life, our body, our conscience, the creation around us, we begin to infer the existence of our maker and something of his life. And it is described here what we can know. We can know the invisible characteristics. His goodness, for example, the name of God is good. We know it instinctively. His majesty, whenever a man, however pagan he may be, speaks to God, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, the majesty of God. His wisdom, every person who thinks about God knows he is all wise. And all the questions we have with God start out with the fact that we believe he's wise, then we say, how come this and that? Instinctively we know his power, 
All you have to do is stand outside in a storm and hear the thunder and watch the lightning. Stand in front of a great waterfall and see the power and energy there and you know of the power of God. Every man living knows his power. And the excellent perfections, that whole host of divine virtues, all those are somehow instinctively known. It is not foreign to us to talk this way about God because it is known to us by the creation, ever since creation, that has been shown to us. Some of you students in school will be hearing your teachers say this fall, if they haven't said it already, that religion is the gradual development of the human spirit from stones and fire finally to one God, the God of Israel, and finally in Jesus Christ, and so on. They will say that religion rose from the the savage and, and the polytheistic up to the monotheistic. I hope you will not believe that. The Bible shows that in the beginning God made himself known to man and the savage polytheistic primitive religions that we still see today existing are a degeneration from God's original proclamation of his truth. That's what is written here. How man declined not how he grew. We would never of ourselves have come to God. He gave us his name in the beginning and men have lost it. Don't believe the evolution of religion. You believe as the Bible teaches in the degeneration of religion. What we knew in addition to the invisible characteristics, the power and the divine excellences is the duty. That is, God communicated to us that these qualities in him demanded something of us. They asked us to glorify him. They carried the duty of thanking him for his creation and his gifts. And so we were born, and the whole race has been taught that there is a God, they knew God, and that we have a duty enough to be responsible for, not enough to be saved by, enough to be responsible for so that we can read in Scripture, they are without excuse. What did we do with our duty? What did we do with these truths about God? It's described there in this dark passage. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. We have the great duty of glorifying God and honoring him and thanking him, and we omit it. That is, the natural man omitted to do his duty. When God is unworshipped, God becomes unknown. And the neglect of the duty led, us, led the natural man deeper and deeper into his decline. So that what took place was the futility of the mind. When the mind was no longer exercised with divine truth, it became vain and proud. And pride leads to foolishness, which in the Bible is called sin. 
And that leads to more pride. So that thinking they were wise, they were utterly foolish. You've heard men who seemed so proud of their ideas and in the sight of God they were fools. And then the degradation found its completion at the level of thought in the substituting for their object of worship instead of the immortal God images of men who die and of animals so that the creature replaced the creator and men went from the revelation of God to the sin of idolatry. This is the decline, the deliberate corruption of the natural man. This is what men do with the divine revelation of God. But God is not an idle spectator watching this process, seeing how far down man no, he's a righteous judge. And God punished the mental, religious sins of the natural man by allowing man to proceed into the bodily sins. First, the sins were in the area of worship and thinking, senseless minds, futile hearts, vain imaginations. And then it, we read, God gave them up. And the point here is that God punishes sin with sin. Now we think sin is something to be sought after, something beautiful, enjoyable. In God's terms, it is a punishment. God abandons those who abandon him. That is, he takes away the restraints of his providence in such a way that the one who is sinning goes deeper into sin and to a whole new kind of sin. He abandons him here, it says, to uncleanness, which is immorality. Did you ever think of adultery or immorality as God's reward for mental sin? That's what it is. We read in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs that the mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit and whoever is abhorred by the Lord falls into it. Whoever gets engaged in adultery by that very act is receiving the judgment of God for some previous sin. God let him go, gave him up to wickedness because of other sins. But whoso pleaseth the Lord escapes from her. If you're pleasing the Lord, he will keep you from fleshly sins. The degradation of the human heart begins in the mind and in the area of wrong worship and then declines corruptly into uncleanness. Then we read again, God gave them up. Still not acknowledging God. He allowed them to go deeper into perversion. That awful sin which characterizes a culture that has rejected the truth and failed to thank God is the result of God giving them up even further. Then we read as if this were not far enough that God gave them up 
to a base mind and improper conduct, even below perversion, is the reprobate mind. This is the mind which is no mind at all anymore. Because in God's sight, it cannot make the difference between right and wrong. It is a mind confused and lost. And so God writes it off. It is no mind at all. A rejected mind. A reprobate mind. A base mind. And this leading to the improper conduct which is described in verses 29 to 31. Covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Interesting that that very prevalent sin should be in this list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now some of you are saying, I don't know anything about those sins. But let me ask you to look just for a minute at Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 where Paul lists his own natural state. And there he says about himself in verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So there is a sense in which this is a philosophy of human history. Paul here is outlining the degradation, the deliberate corruption of the human race. But there's an also a sense in which he's giving the personal spiritual pilgrimage of a natural man, describing the evils of a human heart before the grace of Jesus Christ corrupts it. And the mark of this reprobate mind, this improper conduct, this ultimate giving up of God, the mark is most surprising. It is. They not only do these things, but approve those who practice them. This is what God hates most. It is far enough for a man to be involved in wickedness. But when the natural man also encourages by his words or silence the iniquity of others, God's wrath overflows upon him. Then the deliberate corruption of the human race is complete in not only disobeying God, but approving of the disobedience of others. Do we need the gospel? Oh, our condition is desperate under the judgment of God. Our corruption is deliberate. We are without excuse. Everyone who is a natural, unconverted person is without excuse. For God himself, only on the basis of our own sin, has given us up to degradation. And the passage bears within it the mighty theme that the gospel is utterly necessary because the natural man deserves the dreadful 
condemnation of God. He deserves it. God is the righteous judge. Is it conceivable that his judgment would err? Is it possible that God, whose eyes are flames of fire, could be deceived in searching the human heart? Is it even possible to cross your mind that God could condemn as a hypocrite someone who was a genuine believer? Impossible, you say. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God's judgment is righteous and just and utterly fair. And our own hearts tell us, do they not? Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die. That is, there is in the human heart of the natural man the perception of the judgment of God. We know that he is a righteous judge and that someday at the end of the age we shall give account of ourselves we know there will be a balance and we shall have to receive according to the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. We know that, but the natural man chooses to suppress that truth and to ignore it. If our hearts condemn us, says the scripture, God is greater than our hearts. And so the righteous wrath of God which while the natural man lives on this earth only rests on him. We read in John 3 and verse 36 that he that does not believe in the Son does not receive life and the wrath of God abides on him. In this life, the man or woman who resists Christ has the wrath of God resting. But at the day of final judgment and ever after, the wrath of God will be within that person and that person within the wrath of God. That's why it is called the lake of fire because that person will be immersed in the wrath of God and fire will glow from the condemned sinner as fire glows from steel. It inhabits the steel. Whoever endures the wrath of God will not merely have it resting on him, but burning within and around him as well. The figure of fire to speak of the wrath of God is a symbol, but the reality it depicts is far more severe than the symbol. Fire itself would be gladly exchanged by the people in hell for what they are really enduring. Oh, they'd say fire would be much preferable to what we have. The wrath of the Lamb. How fierce it is. Those who endure the wrath of God will wish they had never been born. They will wish they had not had one happy day on earth because the contrast between the happiness of this life and the agony of hell will be so great they will despise every happy experience on the face of the earth. They will wish Christ had never come, that he had never shed his blood, that they should not be accountable for spurning his grace. Oh, what 
dreadful condemnation. How different from detention here. When you have served one year of a prison term, at least you can say, well, there's only 19 left. Small comfort, you can say 19 left. But when you have endured the agonies of hell for what seem like a million years, you have just begun. There is no subtracting in hell. You go on forever enduring the wrath of God because there's no grace given to repent. And out of the agony of that experience, great resentment and hatred of God continue over and over. And the wrath of God continues upon those who experience and glorify him in their condemnation. Is the gospel necessary? Oh, yes, it is. It is necessary to change your condition because the gospel can come with a word of life that makes you a son of God and someone who walks in the light and who loves to obey God's commandments who delights in his word and loves and serves his people. That's a change in condition. Only the gospel can do it. And the gospel can heal your corruption. Now the mind is senselessly darkened, vain and proud in its imaginations, foolish, worshiping creatures rather than creators. But when the gospel enters, oh, what a blessed transformation. The mind is renewed. It begins to think God's thoughts. It soars into heavenly places, experiencing wonder, love, and praise. Divine imagination replaces futile thinking, and the mind is set free to be what God called it to be. It can change the condemnation. How awful to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. You don't have to hear that. You may hear, Come, ye blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The condemnation can be relieved, for there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the gospel. To be in Christ Jesus, that is all in all. To be in him is to escape your desperate condition, to lose your awful corruption, to come out from under your condemnation. To be in Christ is to be secure here and forever. Enter him. Why do you delay? He opens his bosom to you. He asks you to come into his graces, into his love, into his arms, and be his forever. Why should you perish when Christ invites you? Come with tears of repentance, with confession of faith. Come to Christ. Let us pray. O oh, blessed Master, 
we thank thee for unfolding in this dark passage the ugly truth about our condition. It is good news to us, O God, for we sense and know that you have not made us this way, but by deliberate sin we have come into it. And therefore there is hope of restoration and new life from you. We thank you for the blessed gospel, how utterly essential it is. Without it we would die, without Christ we are undone and nothing. So we run now to you. We leave our sins, our old ways of thinking, our pride, and we run and fall upon you in tears of repentance and faith. 